Welcome once again to By Grace. We are thrilled that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you're joining us live or you're with us on the live stream, we are glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2. We're going to continue our study going verse by verse through this Paul letter, this letter from Paul. Remind us every week because we need to remember it every single week that this is God's word, that it is spoken and given to us that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 9. Word of the Lord. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, very thing I was eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we're gathered here on this day, and we sing and celebrate the gospel of grace, the gospel of freedom. Lord, we know that this is the theme of the whole epistle, that Paul wrote this letter not just to expose Peter's sin, but that we might know the distinction between poor behavior and behavior that betrays the gospel we love and sing about, the one that is filled with all that you have done and promised, all that you have fulfilled and purposed. So Father, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes that we might see true, see clearly. Father, we also pray for ears, that you would give us ears that would tune in to the truth of your voice, and that we would clearly understand it as distinct from all the noise in us and around us. Father, we pray for joyfully repentant hearts. God, that you would convict us of sin, but not leave us in the sorrow and misery of those convictions but that you would transform and renew us, that you would strengthen and restore us, that we would love what you love 
and that we would see what threatens to negate, betray, or undermine this gospel message that you have given us. Be with us, we ask this morning, for the sake of your kingdom and the heralding of the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. Just as I prayed a moment ago and we sang already this morning, we have been given a message to proclaim. It's the greatest message. That's why we call it a gospel. Good news. Good news that God in Christ has accomplished all that the law demanded. Good news that your poor performance does not overcome the excellencies of Christ's obedient life. That our sin and shame and guilt don't stay with us eternally if we are hidden away in Christ. So the gospel, we affirm week after week after week in our study together, that the gospel is not about what you do for God. This one true gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. You, if you hang out here at By Grace for a while, your vocab is going to go up. It's necessary as we study and learn the truth that we find the meaning for and the value in having singular words to express or summarize large concepts. If you hang out with me and connect, middle school and high school, we will spend our time together focused on understanding orthodoxy. What is right belief? What is the gospel that we believe? How do we understand orthodoxy? Two words, ortho, straight, correct, or right. Doxy, meaning glory. It's the same root word we get for doxology, which we sing at the end of every service here. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, can you hear the word practice? This is right action, orthopraxy. If we are to understand what Paul is progressing his argument towards, what he is illustrating for his audience is that orthodoxy and orthopraxy are linked. It is right belief that fuels and empowers right action. It informs it. But that right action then confirms the validity of and value of this orthodoxy. Let me be very clear. What you do does not make you right with God. Being made right with God will then empower you to live congruent to belief. Right belief, right action. 
when we study the Bible, there are intricacies and nuances, complexities. So when we get to a moment like this, where few words, as in the paragraph we're dealing with today, represent much larger realities. You've heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, sometimes dozens of words represent years of history that happens in space and time between real people. So one of the things that is incumbent upon us as a follower of Christ is that we are to study God's word. We are to know him through his words that are perfect, flawless, in their original autographs passed down from generation to generation. But it's a lot of words, what are we talking, 1,500 pages? You guys have all mastered the Bible, right? That's why you're here today. That's why you love by grace. It's a place where everybody has already mastered the Bible. Tongue firmly in cheek. It's a place where we seek, I hope, to study and master the Bible that we would be mastered by it. But orthodoxy and orthopraxy are intimately connected. It is not orthopraxy that gives birth to orthodoxy. It is faith in Christ alone that saves. True? And that is of grace, not works. True? So when we are united to Christ, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who leads us where we would not otherwise go, rebukes us so that we let go of things we have long loved, forsaking and embracing are two of my favorite ways to think about the Christian life. What is God inviting you to embrace? What is God correcting you to forsake? When we come to the events of today, as Paul's describing them, we must remember a few of the emphasis we've seen, emphases that we've seen already in this letter. First, Peter and Paul are friends. It is so easy to let outside influence undermine the legitimacy of true friendship. If I have anyone who has suffered the glories and tragedies of middle school girldom, you will know that a day can have 15 different relational dynamics. You have a best friend and then you hate her. And you uh, hate somebody else who becomes your best friend. And you haven't even gotten to third period. (laughs) Fellas, don't chuckle too loud. I've seen you in the locker rooms. And I've seen how one person's presence can change the dynamic of a whole room. It is often motivated by fear. 
So if we, as a group, are picking on someone else, maybe we're fine with that, right, fellas? As long as it isn't us. And if it's us, we figure out who we can put it on. None of that, of course, is holy. All of that is human. But we can be a fearful bunch. And that's the second thing we must remember. First, Peter and Paul are intimate friends who have agreed in the message and mission that each have had. But second, humans are fear magnets very often. A small portion of us love conflict. Most of the rest of us withdraw at the potential for a conflict. That's what's happening in this text. The outside influence who come in change the behavior which undermines the belief and the message. It's not that all sin undermines the gospel. In fact, the gospel assumes sin. It's the remedy for it. When we look at the Old Testament, we also see a totally different way of life. Culture, tradition, religion, government, and citizenship all bundled together as one object. All of whom Israel lived within. So when we come as outsiders to that, it can look silly, it can look uh, difficult, it can look frustrating and confusing, especially when Christians today don't know the Old Testament. When we don't know the Bible, we don't know the framework that all of these things grew up inside of and took the shape of. So let me help you today by giving us a very commonly presented understanding of the Old Testament laws and how they generally fit into three categories. I, I, being me, I'm going to caveat this for a second. Before I give you the categories, I want you to understand that the categories themselves are man-made. This is not God has said. These are the three categories. This is how we think about and construct putting them together so that we can understand them and their purpose, their unity, etc. But there are some laws that overlap or don't fit perfectly in this paradigm. So, use this semi-open-handedly. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Don't clinch down on this as if what I'm about to say is pure scripture. It's about scripture. But it is a lens through which we can see scripture and hope that it illuminates. So, with that as an aside... 
Let's do this. Three types of laws in the Old Testament. The first is the one I think most of us are familiar with. Ceremonial laws. You'll see these summarized most in the Mosaic sacrificial system. The sacrificial system that Moses revealed and presided over for 40 years in Israel's history, setting up the trajectory for tabernacle worship and eventually temple worship in both temples. These ceremonial laws can be recognized because they deal with concepts like purity, clean or unclean, prohibitions on food, commanded pious actions, sacrifices, literally the blood sacrifices or other sacrifices that are required, and they are often seen and understood within the construct of the sign of circumcision. Let me give you that again. Ceremonial laws can be recognized because they deal with issues of purity or impurity, clean or unclean, food and dietary restrictions and process, pious actions that are required, do this in this season, do that in these other moments, sacrificial system, this animal for this purpose, these animals, if you can't afford those animals, redeem the firstborn son, well, instead of killing your son, you kill your donkey, etc. And then the sign of your loyalty to the Old Testament laws in all their forms, but especially the ceremonial, is circumcision. It's the sign and seal of the Old Covenant. That's ceremonial law. There's also, because Israel is a nation... There are civil laws, laws that pertain to government, society, and nationhood. For example, these are laws that deal with building codes, perhaps. Laws that deal with how to reconcile divided neighbors. What happens if somebody causes an accident whereby somebody else loses a tooth, an eye, a limb. In other words, this is the area of societal justice. How do we live with one another? And it's also kind of nationally dealing with army and maps, leadership and armies, defending or attacking, those are the civil laws because they're a country. They're a religious-based country. We call that a theocracy. But third, and this is the one that all of us should be able to recognize most of the time, is the moral law. The moral law is universally binding. It's binding on all people in all places throughout all of time. People, places, time. 
None are without excuse. Do we know that murder is wrong? Yes, we are born knowing that murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Falsehood, injustice, they're wrong. Rebelling against God in all forms. Taking other gods and not the true and living God. The moral law is easily seen and understood in the Ten Commandments. Yes. And they're derivatively spoken about and taught throughout all of Scripture. And the moral law is unchanging. Ceremony changes. Civil changes. Moral never changes. So when we see what's happening here and we're trying to understand what is right belief, what is the gospel, that's what the whole letter is contending for, and we try and understand why Paul is going to oppose Peter for his actions, we're beginning to get the insight of orthopraxy. But these issues of ceremonial laws and civil laws and moral laws are the background conversation that makes this so heated. Have you ever had an argument with somebody that was polite, civil, maybe even constructive? I hope so. We are to be peacemakers after all. But peacemakers and silent objectors are not the same thing. So when we think about what's happening here in the backdrop, Paul is remembering and teaching that Christ has come to fulfill every obligation of the covenant. And to abrogate the shadows of him in their hold on the culture. Is circumcision good? Yes. Is circumcision salvific? No. No. Soteriology and ecclesiology are not the same. No matter how many times we dressed it up or we changed the language involved, we are not saved by our participation in things of God. We are saved by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the obedience of his life applied to my disobedience in bearing my punishments on the cross. He takes all of the cursedness from me that I earn and deserve before a righteous God, and he gives to me the blessed obedience that every breath he took empowered and created. Is God pleased with Jesus? 
is God pleased with Jesus. Then if you are in Christ, how does he relate to you? If you get what Jesus had and he takes what we had in this glorious exchange that we call the gospel, what is God's countenance towards us? We're the blessed son. And what's his countenance towards Jesus on the cross? Only wrath. It's literally hellish for Christ on the cross. So we have to be careful how we express what we believe, yes, but we also have to be honest in how we live to confirm or dishonest, we deny the truth of that simple exchange. Christ has come to fulfill the demands of the covenant in our place as our substitute. He has come to abrogate the laws that deal with ceremony that he has fulfilled and civil that no longer is required because Israel is not a nation anymore. I know that you could look on a map and see an Israel described on a map. But Romans 9 teaches us very clearly that in Israel we draw on a map is not speaking of the real Israel that's happening in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Should we as a country care for Israel? Sure. But they are not the descendants of Abraham in the salvific message and promise given in Genesis 12. We forget that so easily. All of the laws point to Christ. All of them. We're told in Mark 7, verse 19, that Jesus, over the course of his life and public ministry, declared all foods clean. Did you know that that's not a new idea come Acts 10? Peter maybe missed it, but Mark didn't. He recorded it for us. The ceremonial food restrictions that affected so deeply the table fellowship that is in view here was long ago abrogated. Christ has come and the laws that were shadows point to the substance of Christ who has come. So what we know is, according to verses 6 through 8 in this chapter, that the apostles were, here's Sproul's line, of one mind. They all agreed that you do not become Jewish as a Gentile in order to become a Christian. The faithful followers of Christ do not need to conform to the shadow 
traditions of old. To the civil commands of old. One mind on that truth. They have the same message, but different mission fields. We spent significant time on that last week. Remembering that no one will be justified in God's sight on the basis of their obedience to the law. But what we see here is that orthopraxy is betraying orthodoxy in Peter's actions. Let's pay attention. We go from the unity of verse 9, right hand of fellowship, given to Barnabas and James and Peter and John, all enjoying that unity. Different mission fields. Some to the Jews, other to the Gentiles. And then there's this tiny little addendum that must be noted. They ask us to remember the poor, and Paul has trouble remembering the poor? No, no. Over and over again in his letters, he keeps trying to raise money for the poor. Kind of everywhere he's going, he wants to come with loot so that he can help those most affected by poverty. So he's clearly, obviously excited to do that. So then we see, flash forward, that Paul is brought by Barnabas to Antioch. And when he's in Antioch, because of the events that unfold, Paul has to publicly confront Peter. The best fights go down at church, right? (laughs) Could you imagine Ileana throwing fists with my wife? (laughs) Liz loses, just for the record. Probably the first pop. It's, it's unimaginable to think of that, right? But, but sometimes we do with our words what we would never do with our hands. Sometimes we do with our cold shoulder what we really desire to do with our hands. It's church the right place for conflict? (laughs) Is church the right place for conflict? Yes, conflict that is productive. Conflict when dealt with rightly, carefully, diligently. Yes, yes, yes. Is this the right place for the kinds of conflicts that divide out of ego? No way. But verse 11 has got to be shocking. Listen to this language. Paul's getting heated up again. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You can do that righteously, but you cannot do that silently. How do you handle conflict? What does the Bible say to you about conflict? Peter's sin is public. 
public sin should be repented of publicly. Private sin does not always need to be dealt with publicly. There are occasions, and that's the burden your session has. But public sin, public repentance. Private sin, private repentance. That's the normal pattern in most situations. But Peter is leading people astray. Listen to the particulars. Once you get over the shock and awe of an apostle rebuking an apostle in front of everyone who once knew perfect unity and brotherhood and friendship and partnership, and now there's a finger in Peter's face. Maybe literally, but at least proverbially. Why is Paul so hot that he would add the tag at the end of verse 11? Pay attention to this tag at the end of verse 11. What does Paul say about Peter's behavior and why he has to rebuke him to his face in public? What's Peter standing in that moment? I'm sorry, I didn't write the word. Help me out. What is it? How many of you are comfortable with that word? You're like, yeah, Peter, the apostle, the, the Pentecost preacher, the great denier but reinstated follower of Jesus, the blurb artist, right? Who blurbs out better than Peter? Who speaks what's in everybody else's mind or heart better than Peter? Paul says he's condemned. He's not just wrong and in error. He's not just less than perfect. He doesn't need a little tweak. What's his standing? Does Paul mean to say that Peter has lost his salvation? Let's do that one more time. Is he saying that Peter has lost his salvation? No. He's saying that it's an undefendable position. No need for a trial. No need for witnesses. No need for any kind of complication. Peter's actions are clear and condemnable. The verdict, forensic, justice, court, judge, gavel, boom, guilty. Guilty of what? Denying the gospel. Denying the gospel publicly. Denying the gospel publicly and as an example that leads people away from the truth of Christ. Now, Jesus warns those who oppose him. He says something along the lines, you can look it up. It would be better for somebody to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea whereby they drown brutally, than to lead even one follower of God away from God. 
That's why Peter stands condemned. Because the moral law is absolute. Peter doesn't lose his salvation, but he is undermining the outward expressions that validate and display the gospel. Let me say this very clearly. It is not legalistic for believers to confront sin and hypocrisy. You get me? It is not legalistic for believers to confront sin and hypocrisy. It is brotherhood and love. The loving response to sin and hypocrisy is confrontation in private settings, privately, in public settings, publicly. Peter's betraying the freedom that Christ has secured for all of his people. That's the problem here. Listen to Paul's words. For before certain men came from James, we can call them the James gang, he was eating with the Gentiles as he learned to do when? Yes, we spent two weeks. We invited a half Jewish man to take the pulpit to lead us through the significance of what's developing right in Peter's life. Rise, kill, eat. Do you remember the vision? Rise, kill, eat. Twice he doesn't. Rise, kill, eat. The third time Peter stands his ground thinking I will not deny Christ again. And the Spirit says, you're wrong. I will not deny Christ again. But he is. He's still perplexed before he gets to Cornelius' house. But God had spoken quite clearly what God has made clean. Do not call common or unclean. It's talking about people. What people? Who? Who? He's talking about the Gentiles, which as we think about it, is the whole world except little bitty Israel, who we're told in Deuteronomy 7 is the smallest of all the nations known to them. Tiny little teardrop Israel, big ocean world. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. He's talking here about people. But here's the problem. The problem is that Jewish table fellowship is a deeply ingrained part of their life together. And the dietary restrictions are the reason and basis that Israelites don't eat dinner or lunch, or breakfast, or elevensies with anyone other than fellow Jews. Why? Why is there a whole chapter in Leviticus that deals with food laws? 
seems so capricious. The prohibition of these food laws was to prevent the intermingling with Gentiles. It, was, it wasn't about being corrupted. It's about not welcoming and then receiving the idolatries and the immoralities of the nations that surround them. This is why you should be a little more careful before you commit to going to all the parties in college. Can you be a Christian and go to those parties? Yes. Can you be a Christian and it's unwise for you to go there? Sure. Is it easy to give prescriptions from the pulpit that deal with the nuances and intricacies of hundreds of lives? No. It's not easy. That's why I don't write many prescriptions. But these table fellowship laws are at the heart of family. They're at the heart of city citizenry. They're at the heart of ancestry and dynasty. They're at the bedrock center of what it means to be a Jew every day because you are an Israelite born into Israel. So Peter learns, rise, kill, and eat, understands that people are clean if God makes them clean, that the gospel was always going to go forth to the nations. You can cross-check me in Genesis 12 if you want this week. Gospel's always for the nations. This was always the plan. And if you stick to Israel, you will deny Jesus Christ, whom all of Israel's laws... Promises, histories are designed to point to and reveal as authentic. Peter's life actions are undermining his beliefs and statements. Now, if we're honest, this scene sounds a little bit like middle school lunch. Well, I want to sit with the cool kids. Well, the cool kids came from Jerusalem, so I was just hanging with them. That was not Peter's motive. Peter's fear of their judgment on him for his sitting and eating and having fellowship with the Gentile believers leads him to reject them in the embrace of kids in the embrace of popularity-seeking, reputation protection, or advancement. See, before certain men came from James, he was totally eating with the Gentiles. Rise, kill, eat. But as soon as a cohort from powerful and wealthy Jerusalem comes visiting to check on what's happening there. We're told in verse 12b that Peter drew back. He separated himself. And we're given his motive. Wasn't to be cool, though that's underneath it. It's fear. He was fearing 
the circumcision party, the James gang. When we see this fear, we must define it carefully. This is a withdrawal. This is a shrinking back. This is a reversing course. He was headed in one direction, believing one thing. And because of the outside influence of others, he changed what he was doing and thereby undercut, or if we're going to talk about Peter, let's use a better word, denies the gospel. Peter is changed from the gospels to the book of Acts, yes? Can we see changes in Peter? Boldness at times? Yes, 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 yes. But there's also that same guy who told a little girl waitress, yeah, me and Jesus, we're not buds. He's telling Jesus, I'm not sure I believe what I say I believe. Peter is acting ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of the gospel. Now let's be real with one another. Are there times where you stay silent out of shame? The last thing you want to do on your flight is talk to the crazy lady next to you about Jesus, about the gospel, about all these things you believe and love. Are there times where you know that you are scared to be known? For fear of what? You must examine and then attack that in you that has a loyalty that undermines your loyalty for Christ. I'm not saying go pick a fight and yell at everybody for the rest of your life. I'm saying in love, stop shrinking back. Stop changing course. Stop wishing out of situations that God has planted you in. Yeah, read that word in the Bible. Planted. Placed. You think it's an accident you are where you are? That you have what you have and you know who you know? Or is there a sovereignly cosmic plan unfolding? There are people that you may encounter that by God's sovereign rule and providence, you might be the only one who ever tells them the gospel. You're too tired to do that? You're too worried that they're going to think you're weird in politics or some, right? We herald a gospel of freedom and yet we feel enslaved by the possible retribution. Or is that just me? Am I the only coward in the room? Am I the only one who has been offered the opportunity to preach and share and teach and remained silent, ducked it? It was like this opportunity's coming at me and I can see it from a mile away, but I don't want it. 
So I duck and it flies past. Am I the only coward in the room? Do you have a message? Have you been given something precious like fire in the wilderness and you have to keep feeding it and protecting it, spending time in your day that it would not go out? Well, good news. Faith in Christ doesn't go out, but it also can undermine by your lifestyle by your decisions, by your actions, the veracity of this claim of freedom, this assertion that it's only based on grace and not merit. Consider how Paul sees Peter in this moment. He sees Peter's influence as so supreme that even Barnabas becomes a hypocrite. If you don't know who Barnabas is, newsflash, that guy is a stud. He's one of the early names given outside of officership in the life of the early church. And in all these weird moments, God sovereignly uses him to put people together who are otherwise in conflict. Paul has a conflict with the author of the Gospel of Mark. And they're not reconciled until the very end of Paul's life. But Barnabas sees Paul as stable and goes to protect and develop and grow John Mark. Barnabas sells land and possessions to make sure that the early church has what it needs. Barnabas is a beast. Barnabas is the guy who recruited Paul to come to Antioch in the first place. What's the big deal, Pastor? Kev, you're just going on and on and on about this orthopraxy and this orthodoxy and betraying and negating. What's the big deal? (laughs) What's the church named after? Sorry, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, what? It's grace, but is it just grace or does something come first? By grace, yeah, we picked the preposition, which is totally dumb and sometimes helpful. What verses is that phrase most notably seen in? Was that on your scripture memory this year? I forget. I don't really forget. Tell me. Yes? So I could point to any of you, and you could stand up and give us What that verse says, true? (laughs) Shame on you. Mercy on you because of Christ. Memorize that text. Because if you do not rip that thing apart and put it back together and sear it into your heart because you have heated it up so much that you can't have any imperfections in your understanding of that concept, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it is not by works. What's the benefit of it not being by works? No one gets to say what I did added to what he did. This is the foundation of all Protestantism, yes? Not by works, so that no one can boast. 
What's the next verse? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which the Lord prepared ahead of time that we would walk them out. Orthodoxy leads to, empowers, orthopraxy. And if you go four verses later, you will see Paul specifically dealing with the divide between Jew and Gentile. Listen to Ephesians 2, 14, 15, and 16. For he himself, the he here is Christ. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Jesus Christ, might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So two go away, one united man remains, thus making peace. And he does it that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing what? What? What needs to die in you? So uh, you guys, I can't have you today. Help me out. Do I need to get louder so you'll get louder? What? Does Jesus' body break down? Hostility. Hostility. Not just prejudice, but hostility. All prejudice has a hostility giving birth to it. What's the word we kept using in Acts 10? God is not partial. Doesn't show partiality why doesn't he show partiality because all hostility has been killed in the death of Christ so are the Gentiles your brothers are the Gentiles your sisters are these children ours yes so where's the division Where's the hostility? Why does Peter get to withdraw and undermine the death of Christ? He doesn't. And if Peter doesn't, do we? What you do confirms or betrays what you believe. What you do confirms or betrays what you believe. Peer pressure is cowardice. Fear of anyone or anything other than God himself is idolatry. You guys afraid to get canceled on Twitter? Twitter's not a real place. It's not. Your Facebook wall has no bricks. I asked Dale just to make sure. 
I know, brothers and sisters, that it takes courage to stand for the gospel. But I know, and this is teaching us, that our allegiance must always be to Christ and his gospel. So when we fail, repent. When we are silent, repent. When we see it coming and we don't take it, repent, repent, repent. Not in sorrow unto death but in the restoration of life. Believing the gospel more and more and more. Be committed to Christ, even in the face of influential people. Remembering that it's not legalistic for believers to confront sin and hypocrisy. And that idolatry is the root of this fear of those who seem wealthy or powerful or influential. We should agree with Paul. What they are means nothing to me. Here's my question and then we'll pray. Do your actions make a distinction that God himself does not make? Do your actions demonstrate that you don't think the wall of hostility has been killed in the death of Christ and that we have victory over all of that hostility in the celebration of Easter morning. The gospel is not just for you. It is. But it is also for your neighbor and for men and women and children throughout all time in every place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been silent when you have called us to speak. Father, we have spoken when you would call us to remain silent. Father, you and you alone must comb through our daily lives and reveal to us our unbelief, our fear of man, Father, we confess freely that we at times have not loved you with our whole heart, with our whole mind or strength, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves because we have viewed them as unworthy, as distinct, unreachable, scary, different. Father, forgive us. Forgive us and reconcile us not only to yourself in Christ, but to the entire body, singular, through the cross. Lord, kill the hostility we have towards you and towards others. And do it that the name of Jesus Christ would be praised, preached and proclaimed, heralded in all places, all the time throughout all the generations. May your glories be on our lips and on our fingers and in our footsteps everywhere we go. We ask you to do this incredible work because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people agree.